The Time Traders by Andre Norton, Chapter 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rendition by R.J. Davis. The Time Traders by Andre Norton, Chapter 10. Having been cuffed and battered into submission more quickly than would have been possible three weeks earlier, Murdoch now stood sullenly surveying the man who, though he dressed like a beaker trader, persisted in using a language Ross did not know. We do not play as children here. At last the man spoke words Ross could understand. You will answer me, or else others shall ask the questions, and less gently. I say to you now, who are you, and from where do you come? For a moment Ross glowered across the table at him, his inbred antagonism to authority aroused by that contemptuous demand. But then common sense cautioned. His initial introduction to this village had left him bruised and with one of his headaches. There was no reason to let them beat him until he was in no shape to make a break for freedom, when and if there was an opportunity. I am Rossa of the traitors he returned, eyeing the man with a carefully measured stare. I came into this land in search of my kinsmen, who were taken by raiders in the night. The man who sat on a stool by the table smiled slowly. Again he spoke in a strange tongue, and Ross merely stared stolidly back. His words were short and explosive-sounding, and the man's smile faded. His annoyance grew as he continued to speak. One of Ross's two guards ventured to interrupt, using the beaker language. From where did you come? He was a quiet-faced, slender man, not like his companion, who had roped Murdoch from behind and was of the bully breed, able to subdue Ross's wildcat resistance in a very short struggle. I came to this land from the south, Ross answered, after the manner of my people. This is a new land with furs and golden tears of the sun to be gathered and bartered. The traders move in peace, and their hands are raised against no man. Yet in the darkness there came those who would slay without profit. For what reason I have no knowing. The quiet man continued the questioning, and Ross answered fully with details of the past of one Rossa, a beaker merchant. Yes, he was from the south. His father was Gurdy, who had a trading post in the warm lands along the big river. This was Ross's first trip to open new territory. He had come with his father's blood brother, Asha, who was a noted far voyager, and it was an honor to be chosen as donkey leader for such a one as Asha. With Asha had been Makna, one who was also a far trader, though not as noted as Asha. Of a certainty, Asha was of his own race. Ross blinked at that question. One need only to look upon him to know that he was of traitor's blood and no uncivilized woods runner. How long had he known Asha? Ross shrugged. Asha had come to his father's post to winter before and had stayed with them through the cold season. Gertie and Asha had mingled blood after he pulled Gertie free from the river in flood. Asha had lost his boat and trade goods in that rescue. 
so Gertie had made good his loss this year. Detail by detail he gave the story. In spite of the fact that he provided these details glibly, such that they were true, Ross continued to be haunted by an odd feeling that he was indeed reciting a tale of adventure which had happened long ago and to someone else. Perhaps that pain in his head made him think that these events as very colorless and far away. It would seem, the quiet man turned to the one behind the table, that this is indeed one Rasa, a beaker traitor. But the man looked impatient and angry. He made a sign to the other guard, who turned Ross around roughly and sent him towards the door with a shove. Once again the leader gave an order to, in his own language, adding a few words more with a stinging snap that might have been a threat or a warning. Ross was thrust into a small room with a hard floor and not even a skin rug to serve as a bed. Since the quiet man had ordered the removal of the ropes from Ross's arms, he leaned against the wall, rubbing the pain of returning circulation away from his wrist and trying to understand what had happened to him and where he was. Having spied upon it from the heights, he knew it wasn't an ordinary trading station, and he wanted to know what they did here. Also, somewhere in this village he hoped to find Asha and Makna. At the end of the day his captors opened the door only long enough to push inside a bowl and a small jug. He felt for those in the dusk, dipping his fingers into a lukewarm mush of meal and drinking the water from the jug avidly. His headache dulled, and from experience Ross knew that this bout was almost over. If he slept, he would awaken with a clearer mind and no pain. Knowing he was very tired, he took the precaution of curling up directly in front of the door so that no one could enter without arousing him. It was still dark when he awoke with a curious urgency remaining from a dream he could not remember. Ross sat up. Flexing his arms and shoulders to combat the stiffness which had come with his cramped sleep. He could not rid himself of a feeling that there was something to be done and that time was his enemy. Asha! Gratefully he seized on that. He must find Asha and Makna, for the three of them could surely discover a way to get out of this village. That was what was so important. He had been handled none too gently, and they were holding him a prisoner. But Ross believed that this was not the worst which could happen to him here, and he must be free before the worst did come. The question was, how could he escape? His bow and dagger were gone, and he did not even have his long cloak pin for a weapon, since he had given that to Frigga. Running his hands over his body, Ross inventoried what remained of his clothing and possessions. He unfastened the bronze chain belt still buckled to his kilt tunic. Swinging the length speculatively in one hand, a masterpiece of craftsmanship, it consisted of patterned plates linked together with a series of five finely wrought chains and a front buckle in the form of a lion's head. Its protruding tongue served as a hook to support a dagger sheath. Its weight promised a weapon of sorts, which when added to the element of surprise might free him. By rights, they would be expecting him to produce some opposition, however. It was well known that only the best fighters, the shrewdest minds, 
followed the traitor's roads. It was a proud thing to be a traitor in the wilderness, a thought that warmed Ross now as he waited in the dark for what luck and ball ball of the bright horns would send. Were he ever to return to Gertie's post, ball ball, whose boat rode across the sky from dawn to dusk, would have a fine ox, jars of the first brewing, and sweet-swelling amber laid upon his altar. Ross had patience which he had learned from the mixed heritage of his two pasts, the real and the false graft. He could wait as he had waited many times before, quiet and with outward ease. For the right moment to come, it came now with footsteps ringing sharply, halting before his cell door. With the noiseless speed of a hunting cat, Ross flung himself from behind a door to a wall where he would be hidden from the newcomer for that necessary instant or two. If his tack was to be successful, it must occur inside the room. He heard the sound of a bar being slid out of its brackets, and he poised himself, the belt rippling from his right hand. The door was opening inward, and a man stood silhouetted against the outer light. He murmured, looking toward the corner where Ross had thrown his single garment in a roll which might just resemble for the needed second or two a man curled in slumber. The man in the doorway took the bait, coming forward far enough for Ross to send the door slamming shut as he himself sprang with the belt aimed for the other's head. There was a startled cry, cut off in the middle as a belt plate met flesh and bone in a crushing force. Luck was with him. Ross caught up his kilt and belted it around him after he had made a hurried examination of the body now lying at his feet. He was not sure that the man was dead, but at any rate he was completely unconscious. Ross stripped off the man's cloak and located his dagger, freed it from the belt hook, and snapped it on his own. Then, inch by inch, Ross edged open the door, peering through the crack. As far as he could see, the hall was empty, so he jerked the portal open, and dagger in hand sprang out, ready for attack. He closed the door, slipping the bar back into its brackets. If the man inside revived and pounded for attention, his own friends might think it was Ross and delay investigating. But the escape from the cell was the easiest part of what he planned to do, as Ross well knew. To find Asha and Magda in this maze of rooms occupied by the enemy was far more difficult. Although he had no idea in which of the village buildings they might be confined, this one was the largest and seemed to be the headquarters of the chief men, which meant it could also serve as their prison. Light came from a torch in a bracket halfway down the hall, the wood burned smokily, giving off a resinous odor, and to Ross the glow was sufficient illumination. He slipped along as close to the wall as he could, ready to freeze at the slightest sound but this portion of the building might well have been deserted, for he saw or heard no one. He tried the other two doors opening out of the hall, but they were secured on the other side. Then he came to a bend in the corridor and stopped short, hearing a murmur of low voices. If he had used a hunter's tricks of silent tread and vigilant weariness before, Ross was doubly on guard now 
as he wiggled to a point from which he could see beyond that turn. Mere luck prevented him from giving himself away a moment later. Asha! Asha, alive, well, apparently under no restraint, was just turning away from the same quiet man who had had a part in Ross's interrogation. That was surely Ross's brown hair, his slender, wiry body draped with a beaker's kilt. A familiar tilt of the head convinced Ross, though he could not see the man's face. The quiet man went down the hall, leaving Asha before a door. As he passed through it, Ross sped forward and followed him inside. Asha had crossed the bare room and was standing on a glowing plate in the floor. Ross, aroused to desperate action by some fear he did not understand, leaped after him. His left hand fell upon Asha's shoulder, turning the man half around as Ross, too, stepped upon the patch of luminescence. Murdoch had only an instant to realize that he was staring into the face of an astonished stranger. His hand flashed up in an edgewise blow which caught the other on the side of the throat, and then the world came apart about them. There was a churning, whirling sickness which gripped and bent Ross almost double across the crumbled body of his victim. He held his head lest it be torn from his shoulders by the spinning thing which seemed based behind his eyes. The sickness endured only for a moment, and some buried part of Ross's mind accepted it as a phenomenon he had experienced before. He came out of it gasping, to focus his attention once more on the man at his feet. The stranger was still breathing. Ross stooped to drag him from the plate and began binding and gagging him with lengths torn from his kilt. Only when his captive was secured did he begin looking about him curiously. The room was bare of any furnishings, and now, as he glanced at the floor, Ross saw that the plate had lost its glow. The beaker trader, Rosser rubbed sweating palms on his kilt and thought feelingly of forest ghosts and other mysteries. Not that the traders bowed to those ghosts, which were the plague of lesser men and tribes, but anything which suddenly appeared and then disappeared, without any logical explanation, needed thinking on. Murdoch pulled the prisoner, who was now reviving to the far end of the room, and then went back to the plate with the persistence of a man who refused to treat with ghosts and wanted something concrete to explain the unexplainable. Though he rubbed his hands across the smooth surface of the plate, it did not light up again. His captain, having ripped himself half out of the corner of the room, Ross debated the wisdom of another silencing. Say a tap on the skull with the heavy hilt of his dagger. Deciding against it because he might need a guide, he freed the victim's ankle bonds and pulled him to his feet, holding the dagger ready where the man could see it. Were there any more surprises to be encountered in this place, Asher's devil would test them first. The door did not lead to the same corridor, or even the same kind of corridor Ross had passed through moments earlier. Instead, they entered a short passage with walls of some smooth stuff which had almost a sheen of polished metal and were sleek and cold to the touch. In fact, the whole place was chill, chill as river water in the spring. Still hurting the prisoner before him, Ross came to the nearest door and looked within. 
to be faced by incomprehensible frames of metal rods and boxes. Rasa of the traders marveled and stared, but again he realized that what he saw was not altogether strange. Part of one wall was a board on which small lights flashed and died, to flash again in wakes of bright color. A mysterious object made of wire and disk hung across the back of a chair standing nearby. The bound man lurched for the chair and fell, rolling toward the wall. Ross pushed him on until he was hidden behind one of the metal boxes. Then he made the rounds of the room, touching nothing, but studying what he could not understand. Puffs of warm air came in through grills near the floor, but the room had the same general chill as the hall outside. Meanwhile, the lights on the board had become more active, flashing on and off in complex patterns. Ross had heard a buzzing, as if a swarm of angry insects were gathering for an attack. Crouching beside his captive, Ross watched the lights, trying to discover the source of the sound. The buzz grew shriller, almost demanding. Ross heard the tramp of heavy footgear in the corridor, and a man entered the room, crossing purposely to the chair. He sat down and drew the wire and disc frame over his head. His hands moved under the lights, but Ross could not guess what he was doing. The captive at Murdoch's side tried to stir, but Ross's hand pinned him quiet. The shrill noise which had originally summoned the man at the lights was interrupted by a sharp pattern of long and short sounds, and his hands flew even more quickly while Ross took in every detail of the other's clothing and equipment. He was neither a shaggy tribesman nor a trader. He wore a dull green outer garment cut in one piece to cover his arms and legs as well as his body. And his hair was so short that his round skull might have been shaven. Ross rubbed the back of his wrist across his eyes, experiencing again that dim other memory. Odd as this man looked, Murdoch had seen his like before somewhere, yet the background had not been Gertie's post in the southern river, where and when had he, Rossa, ever been with such strange beings, and why could he not remember it all more clearly? Boots sounded once more in the hall, and another figure strode in. This one wore furs, but he too was no woods hunter, Ross realized as he studied the newcomer in detail. The loose overshirt of thick fur with its hood thrown back, the high boots, and all the rest were not of any primitive fashioning. And the man had four eyes. One pair were placed normally on either side of his nose, and the other two, black-rimmed and murky, were set above on his forehead. The fur-clad man tapped the one seated at the board. He freed his head partially from the wire cage so that they could talk together in a strange language while lights continued to flash and the buzzing died away. Ross's captive wiggled with renewed vigor and at last thrust free a foot to kick at one of the metal installations. The resulting clang brought both men around. The one at the board tore his head cage off as he jumped to his feet while the other brought out a gun. Gun? One little fraction of Ross's mind wondered at his recognition of that black thing and of the danger it promised, even as he prepared for battle. He pushed his captive across the path of the man in fur and threw himself in the other direction. There was a blast to make a torment in his head 
as he hurled towards the door. So intent was Ross upon escape that he did not glance behind, but skidded out on his hands and knees, thus fortunately presenting a poor target to the third man coming down the hall. Ross's shoulder hit the newcomer at thigh level, and they tangled in a struggling mass which saved Ross's life as the others burst out behind them. Ross fought grimly, his hands and feet moving in blows he was not conscious of planning. His opponent was no easy match, and at last Ross was flattened in spite of his desperate efforts. He was whirled over, his arms jerked behind him, and cold metal rings snapped about his wrist. Then he was rolled back to lie blinking up at his enemies. All three men gathered over him, barking questions which he could not understand. One of them disappeared and returned with Ross's former captive. His mouth a straight line, and a light in his eyes Ross understood far better than words. You are the traitor prisoner. The man, who looked like Asha, leaned over Murdoch, patches of red on his tanned skin where the gag and wrist bonds had been. I am Rossa, son of Gertie, of the traitors, Ross returned, meeting what he read in the other's expression with a ready defiance. I was a prisoner, yes, but you did not keep me one for very long then, nor shall you now. The man's thin upper lip lifted. You have done yourself ill, my young friend. We have a better prison here for you, one from which you shall not escape. He spoke to the other men, and there was a ring of an order in his voice. They pulled Ross to his feet, pushing him ahead of them. During the short march, Ross used his eyes, noticing things he could not identify in the rooms through which they passed. Men called questions, and at last they paused long enough, Ross firmly in the hold of the fur-clad guard, for the other two to put on similar garments. Ross had lost his cloak in the fight but no fur shirt was given him. He shivered more and more as a chill which hung to that worn of rooms and halls bit into his half-clad body. He was certain of only one thing about this place. He could not possibly be in the crude buildings of the valley village. However, he was unable to guess where he was and how he had come here. Finally, they went down a narrow room filled with bulky metal objects of bright scarlet or violet that gleamed weirdly, and were equipped with rods along which all the colors of the rainbow reigned. There was a round door, and when one of the guards used both hands to tug it open, the cold that swept in at them was a frigid breath that burned as it touched bare skin. This concludes the reading of Chapter 10.